The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. And you're very welcome to the RTE Rugby Podcast as Andy Farrell names his Six Nations squad, a 37-man squad ahead of the start of the tournament. Ireland against Wales is the opening match in the Championship next month. We're very excited. RTE back on board as tournament media partners as well, which was officially announced in the launch this week. We also have the Champions Cup continuing and knockout places still up for grabs with the Irish Promises. Delighted to be joined by Donald Lennon, by Wes Liddy and by Bernard Jackman. Donald, we'll just start with Ireland, if you don't mind, um, to take us out of the clubs for a bit. We've been saturated with the Champions Cup and I guess uh, all things bad with Munster over the last while, but we have a Six Nations to look forward to. We have a 37-man squad and we have two new faces, um, one in particular, uh, Mac Hansen and Mike Lowry, who uh, I'm sure will bring a lot of excitement should they get game time, given their form for Connacht and Ulster over the past uh, few months. But your overall thoughts on the squad, as expected, pretty much? Very much so. Look, I think after the Autumn Internationals and the New Zealand game in particular, I think you've got a hardcore of 25, 26 players who were nailed on. You could almost put them in a World Cup squad at this stage, uh, given you know we're, we're a year and a half out from that tournament. Uh, the exciting thing for me is there is younger talent coming through that I think has been recognised. Um, you know, Michael Lowry, I thought, was outstanding for Ulster against Munster and, and followed it up with a, a brilliant performance against Northampton last week. Um, good to see the likes of Balakoon, who's been out injured, impressed during that uh, November series, uh, came back and again played well. Hume in the centre. I mean, Ulster, they are developing a, a huge cohort of homegrown backs. Uh, you know, you would have felt last week going to Northampton without... Uh, McCluskey, they might struggle somewhat. So good to see those younger fellas being rewarded. Uh, I think, again, we've seen the age-old thing. Once you put up your hand in the air and say you're leaving Ireland, then that's the end of it. So Alton Delan falls out, Treadwell comes in. Uh, but look, that's the fifth lock position. I'm sure there's there's others would, would possibly put their hand up and say they might have been in the running there. O'Connor and Ulster, Maloney and Leinster. Uh, well, Thornbury has been out in, in, in Connacht uh, our, uh, all season um, so I think he could have been in the running had he been playing but overall I think it's a very strong squad uh, if you had a couple of concerns I suppose tight head is one given that Andrew Porter is now nailed on as loose head starter uh, the backup behind Ty Furlong, a little bit inexperienced even though Bielham is having a good season, Tom O'Toole two or three caps behind him so um, that but overall, I think it's a very strong squad. Delighted, obviously, Jack Carthy. We've spoken about him on this podcast for the last number of months. I think he's there on merit. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I saw the French squad being announced uh, during the week and I went, holy Christ, look at the size and the strength of that squad. Um, but, I, you know, when you go through the Irish squad and, and, and I, I think even the new additions as well, the likes of Larry and Hanson, the exciting backs that we have now, the power that we have in our forwards game, I, I'm, I'm very confident that Ireland will go quite well in the Six Nations this year. Yeah, and I think also from a, a mindset point of view, I think they'll got massive confidence from 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 November. Um, the style of play, um, the the feel good factor. I think the public are now behind the team. So I think while this is a very competitive Six Nations, probably the most competitive I can remember. I mean, I agree with you. France have got a huge amount of depth. Scotland, I think that's the best Scottish squad I've seen for a long time. Uh, England have a have are in that mid cycle, but. Uh, where they're they're building for a World Cup, but yet it's full of excitement, uh, and so I, I think it's going to be very difficult to to win the competition. But I think that when you see the likes of Larry, Hume, um, 
Balaclune starting to get that experience. And then, um, as I said, you know, we, we know what Doris, Kelleher, uh, et cetera, can, can do and the, the backup the backup they have in, in the back row and, and, and a hooker. Um, I think we're in a good place. And yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing seeing it all, all develop. And James Lowe is a big one. I mean, I just yeah. mentioned him. Um, you know, he played the 80 minutes. Um, so, you know, you would have felt he was going to be fit. Um, and it's interesting that we haven't tried to replace him like for like. If you think back to how we used him in November, um, we used his left foot as a as a kicking exit, but also he he was coming into the line from the fullback position a lot. Um, he was a key part of of our performances in in November. I felt so. Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see. It's it'll be interesting to see how how we adapt to that in terms of tactically and whether he comes back in. I know the squad was only announced at four o'clock on uh, yesterday, so. I think they were waiting for medicals to come back. So yeah, possibly he has a muscle injury, which you said, and, and he'll come back in after, after maybe the first or second round. But uh, he was the only real notable omission in my, in my opinion. Yeah, and you're right. Um, and Wesley hasn't been replaced like for like uh, as well. But we do have an abundance of uh, attacking wingers now. And if you think that obviously Andrew Conway, Keith Earls um, still going very strong. Um, you bring in Jordan Larmer, he's gone off the boil a bit, but we know he has you know potential particularly if he's seen as a winger as well. It'll be interesting to see how to use him. Lowry coming in there, Hansen as well. Like, it's it's not a bad bunch of backs to choose from. Um, if you put up, if you say the strongest backline of the competition will probably be the French. And the Irish, pretty much man for man, I wouldn't say it'd be a huge amount to be fearful of. Maybe it's come half, but he's the exception. I think France named a 42-man squad as well. Um, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree that our depth is comparable to theirs. I do think the squad is very strong, but... Yeah, I'd, I'd, go, I'd agree with Bernard. Like, there's no one really to replace Lowe in terms of what he gives you that that outlet with a bit of size and with that left boot as well. But I, I was definitely very impressed with the young Ulster backs the last few weeks. And Balakoon to me looks kind of like he was very, he's obviously been playing very well for a while, but he looks kind of transformed physically from when he first came back from sevens. Um, just looks a really powerful, dynamic athlete. Now, at this point, he's put on a bit of size without losing any agility. I don't know if that's the the impact maybe of, of, of Mikey Kiley going up there to Ulster as strength and conditioning coach. I know he's very highly rated from the GA world, but um, yeah, look, it's a strong squad. There's not many guys you could say are unlucky to miss out. More so because the competition is so strong, but like I, I suppose two two guys for me that that definitely put their hand up, but just in a very competitive area would be again Jack O'Donoghue, um, which has been the case for a while, and, and probably Connor Oliver in the same boat as well. Yeah, absolutely, that'd be brilliant for him. Donald, is it your understanding of and your sense of it now? The government talking this week about easing restrictions and around restaurants and pub times from next week. Um, that because we haven't heard any uh, noises from the IRFU about not having full stadia, you know, we know Wales are looking at moving to England, all that kind of stuff, but is it your sense of things now that we will have a full capacity credit if you have foreign zone games? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there was talk at one stage of maybe it could be down to 75%, but uh, I think things have moved on so quickly. I know the year a few were very bullish. Clubs, for example, all the tickets had to be distributed to the clubs around Ireland over the past, uh, I think it was about four weeks ago now, uh, mm. and they sent out the full allocation. Um, so I think from, you know, a couple of weeks back, the hope at that stage was that you will have a, a full stadium. I think the expectation now is that you're going to have 100%. Uh, them as we know, never closed down. Once Scotland and Wales opened up, that obviously put a little bit more pressure. But I think um, 
look in the wider scheme of things, I think from from next uh, from next Monday we're, we're going to see an easing in restrictions. But I think um, uh, thankfully, brilliantly, I mean uh, we are ninety percent certain that you're going to have full capacity uh, for the opening game. I think there's no doubt unless there was some serious uh, setback that for Italy and Scotland you definitely would have a hundred percent. But it now looks very promising for a full house. And I think to be brilliant, you know, we were we were lucky enough to be there for the All Blacks game. The first yeah. time you had that full house in two years. Yeah. Um, we're going into a third season uh, where you could have disruption to Six Nations, which, you know, it has taken from it in the last two years. No and financially, Jonah, financially it has crippled the unions as well. And I if you cannot afford another championship without three home full houses, surely. Absolutely not. Uh, look, there's only so much government support that you can get. Uh, I know they were absolutely thrilled to have got to the point and they thank their lucky stars given what happened in December and the growth of the Omicron and the, the change in the um, uh, in the regulations. They were absolutely thrilled with the fact that they got three uh, full houses for the November internationals. That was a massive boost to the coffers. See, the problem for the RFU, no different to all the other unions, that, uh, you know, the venture capital, CBC money that came into the game, both at the provincial leagues and at the Six Nations level, that was supposed to be sort of earmarked for longer term projects. But I think that's been consumed over the past two years. The initial tranche of that money is gone because, you know, you needed it to keep the game going. So, uh, you know, if we went through another Six Nations with uh, having to play behind closed doors, then I think the whole financial model of the professional game uh, would come under serious pressure. So I think the timing... Um, is a massive relief to all the unions. Yeah, absolutely, it is. And Birch, uh, you know, as well, you sent an article as well about um, just how reliant the Welsh rugby union is on the money that they earn from the international game and how actually it, it papers over an awful lot of cracks behind the regions. And we know the crowd levels in the regions are just paltry in comparison as well. So it's crucial for the Welsh rugby union and for most of them that we do have uh, full houses at all stadia across the championship. Yeah, it's a, it's a big six nations for Wales. I mean... You know, obviously, I, I've been in touch, living in Wales, working mm. with Dragons. I, I've been sensitive uh, to the discontent um, locally with with rugby in Wales, but it's been um, it's been papered over, camouflaged by the success the national team have had, has kind of kept everybody quiet. But I've never seen such levels of unrest uh, as are happening now. Obviously, the regions are struggling to to get good results in in Europe. Um, yeah, there's obviously big financial problems. They had to borrow 20 million um, and the WRU have put that loan back on the regions. Uh, and, you know, realistically, you look at our Welsh squad and, and I know they won it last year, so it's hard to write them off, but they are missing, I think, uh, 670 caps worth of experience with some of their, their key players missing. So if Wales were to have a, a poor Six Nations on the field, um, if, if the Principality Stadium, you know, isn't sold out, isn't buzzing, Again, you know, the cash-starved regions are, are going to be the ones to suffer at the end of it because, in fairness to the WRU, they made a strategic decision to put all their money into all that um, private equity money into capital projects. So they're building a hotel beside the uh, Principality Stadium. They're building a stadium, roof, walk, etc., with a view to having recurring revenue, you know, down the road. But, yeah, I just... Is that, that's it. quite... That's, sorry to interrupt you. That's quite telling, isn't it, Birch, that... Rather than invest in the regions per se, um, the personnel, the structures maybe behind the academies and players coming through, that they're the most obvious form of revenue now 
is is in projects outside of rugby itself. Yeah. That's pretty damning, isn't it? It is. It is damning. The, the, the way their constitution works, the the domestic game, the clubs, the village, the village rugby is, is ring fenced, so they can't change their funding, right? And they get quite a lot of funding. Um, but the regions, the regions are underfunded. I mean, they've had no crowds. Their sponsorship compared to. Um, to the Irish provinces would be would be far far less. Um, it's they the, the aren't getting they feel they're not getting the support from WRU. The Welsh government has been very strict as well, which hasn't helped compared to the you know the the, the people or the amount of people who are allowed to go to games in the in the English Premiership etc. So it's been a just a, a, a an avalanche of negativity, um, and it's it's going to be very interesting to see how they turn it around. I mean Cardiff for Cardiff for example, Peter Thomas, the benefactor of Cardiff. Is getting back involved, and um, you know they've signed Falatau, they've signed Liam Williams. They're looking for a world class hooker, so potentially Cardiff, you know, could be the the team to, I suppose, represent the Welsh regions at the highest level in the URC or in Europe. And obviously, it's a capital city, yeah, so it has you know um, a bigger catchment area in terms of population, sponsorship, etc. But I would worry for the others, um, and there's also that debate that's been kind of running can Wales afford four teams, you know? Yeah. And I know two years ago, there was definitely people in WRU who were pushing that Scarlet's Ospreys merger. Um, is that likely to happen, do you think? I mean, uh, that, look, they... I don't know. The Ospreys found a benefactor, uh, some Hong Kong-based consortium, and, and uh, they seem to have kept away from that. But look at what's going to drive those kind of decisions? Finance, right? So if, mm. if the regions can't wash their face, if they can't borrow any more money, something drastic will happen and there's a lot of people at that stage they wanted to push it towards a, a two super regions which was an amalgamation of the Ospreys and, and uh, uh, Scarlets Cardiff to become the super regions in the east and potentially the Dragons to be moved up to North Wales where WRU have been trying to create Colin Bay like Colin Bay yeah oh, well, they, they, they formed a team up there um RGC who play in the in the Premiership, uh, and they have a, they have a, they get more funding from the WRU because it's seen as being a project. But yeah, they're talking about having a development team in the in the URC. But like again, what you what proper competition accepts a, a development team? Do you know what I mean? Like so, there's there's massive questions to be asked. But the problem is the WRU are obviously stakeholders in the URC, so potentially they can lobby there. But again. You know, the URC is trying to get its act together. I think it's it's on the right track. But if we go down the route of accepting development, de development teams, um, well, then we're in trouble. But look, at, there's lots of other things to talk about, which are more positive. Wes, you and I are definitely due a night out in Colin Bay. Any chance you're free maybe in uh, mid-March we get the train up? A bit of break crack. There's a few yeah, nice yeah. There. I'm, I'm all for it. It's got a 20-hour <laughs> round trip by the time you factor in the different types of transport. <laughs> yeah, no, but just look, in terms of the overall picture, before we move on from the Six Nations, then, uh, whereas like Ireland as well, it, it, it's a year out from the World Cup and nobody wants to get overexcited mid-cycle mid, mid because we've done that before and look where it's got us in World Cup. But I think there's a genuine feeling of, of excitement around what Ireland can do with this championship. And I, I even think, you know, not winning it wouldn't be a disaster given the strength and depth of the French, given that England, the 6.0 and Reddy Jones now, we just don't know how they're going to play as well. But I think there's a genuine buzz now about this championship as well and, and the potential for Ireland to make this a really good two-year spell starting with this year. Yeah, de there definitely is. And, you know, why wouldn't there be after the November they had? And what is it now, eight consecutive wins? Yeah. But... To be honest, I'm still kind of flabbergasted they produced what they did in November because it wasn't so long ago that yeah everything seemed quite rudderless and lacking direction <clears throat> and 
it, it kind of almost seemed to click and I don't know. I, I don't want to be too much of a skeptic, but there's still a part of me going, what changed so drastically there in that spell, you know? So, but, but yeah, yeah. there is, there is definitely a lot of positivity there and, and rightly yeah. so, I suppose. Yeah, rightly so. We'll get stuck into it then next week. Um, the last round of the URC next weekend before the Wales match the following week. Um, Champions Cup, Donald. So, um, it looks potentially like we could have four Irish provinces involved in the knockout stages. I don't know what your view was on this last 16 home and away two-legged matches as an experiment. Do you think it's something that we should maybe embrace and be a little bit excited about, given that it's very new? Or do you think the knockout straight format was one that pretty much worked all the way through, so why, why change it? Uh, well, look, as an overall concept, I much prefer the pool stages the way they were, straight to knockout semi-final and final. I mean, one of the great Monday mornings used to be when, uh, uh, with a round to go in Europe, and you had the, the five tables, you know, all printed up, po- uh, points differential, number of tries scored, yeah. and you were left there working out the permutations for, uh, for all the teams going into the last round. Given this new format they have, I haven't a clue what people need to do. Do you know what I mean? It's all over the place. Well, so. it's, it's, it's nearly harder not to qualify than it is to qualify, Donald. I think it's sort of like, it's yeah, kind of like it kids, birth, kids' birthday party football, like everyone's the winner, here's the gold medal, off you go, like, you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, look, there's 16 of the 24 teams qualified. So there's some teams that, uh, you know, have won one match out of three and they're, you know, they've a great chance of qualifying. Uh, I mean... I know we had an extraordinary season this year uh, for the UR, or for the, the Champions Cup because of COVID. But like the most bizarre thing for me last week was Bristol were in a brilliant position, seven points. They played no match. They got five points for a walkover and two <laughs> points for a draw at a game that was cancelled. So seven <laughs> points, no match played. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just bizarre, that type of thing. Look, I think home and away, we've never seen aggregate scores in rugby Um I think as as something different, it's worth having a look and see how, yeah. how, it, how it works out. You know, if you have, you know, an Irish province who goes to France and they're beaten by 12, 14 points, everybody knows what needs to be done when they come back come to back here. Where, where they're playing. And you could just imagine the buzz around that. So, look, I think there's merit in it. I think it was the one thing that was different that they uh, brought into the new setup that I was really looking forward to. Because of COVID, it hasn't happened since they introduced it first. Originally, it was supposed to be at the quarter-final stage. Now it's in the last round. It's at the round of 16 stage. But um, uh, as I say, look, it's just... I think the, the, the way you have the two pools at 12 at the moment is so convoluted. I mean, and then you have teams that play... You know, Was, for example, played Munster in the opening round. Yeah. And they, they arrived for the final round on Sunday in Thoman Park. Yeah, uh, Munster played Cass, but Was didn't play Cass. Was no. played Toulouse. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's how you said, Jesus. I would say, what are they doing playing Toulouse? Where are Cass after disappearing? To? But yeah. uh, you know that's it's it's an anomaly. Look, I think um, EPCR because of everything that has happened, because of the fallout, we've had loads of you know the loads of French coaches coming out saying this thing is a farce. Uh, yeah. We've seen a lot of their clubs not fielding their strongest team. Um, a lot of the English clubs, which I, I, I find amazing. Like they spend the whole season trying to qualify for Europe. And then the minute they get in there, they don't make any effort to compete in it. So, you know, it's one of these anomalies. If this, this is, is the, the showcase of European the, rugby, it has yeah. to be treated as such by every team that competes. And is it totally fair to say that this is the last season that EPCR 
can kind of mess about with these experimental formats. They must decide, surely, for the benefit of the tournament, so everybody knows what's happening. Here's the structure. This is the competition. This is how you qualify. This is the knockout stage. This is the last season because of COVID and all that kind of stuff that, that can have this experimental feel to it, surely. Absolutely. I think a, a line has to be drawn. Whoever wins the Champions Cup this year, brilliant, fair dues to them, but a line has to be drawn on two fronts. Number one, the format of the tournament, because the new one just hasn't worked. It hasn't captured the imagination and uh, too many teams don't seem to have bought into it. The second one was, you know, the whole when they got rid of ERC and that was driven by a lot of the French and the English club owners, the Bruce Craigs of this world. Uh, they were claiming that from a commercial perspective, there was so much more uh, that could have been done that wasn't being done. And that would make it more lucrative for the clubs to be involved yeah. in this tournament. That hasn't happened. If anything, the money involved has regressed. So therefore, that also needs to be, if you want to keep the top French and English clubs engaged, you're going to have to make it, the financial rewards uh, have to be there. And I think there should be some support, there should be some form of bonus. If you make it to the quarterfinal stage, then you get 150 or 200,000. Do you know what I mean? Reward the teams that are, uh, making progress through the tournament, but also reward them financially because that is what will make a lot of the French and the English clubs sit up and take notice. Bear in mind, you know, we're all under the umbrella of the IRFU. If you're the likes of Bordeaux or Toulouse or Gloucester, you have to justify your 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 balance sheet and your, your um, financial status at the end of the season to a board and to investors. Mm-hmm. So therefore, uh, Europe has to be far more cognizant of the financial rewards involved as a consequence. Absolutely. And like you just look at the the, the, the Champions League model versus the Europa League model, you, you think back to when, you know, Shamrock Rovers went on that run as well or to Dock, whatever it's worth, you know, hundreds of thousands to them. And it was, it was game changing. And ultimately, at the end of the day, like they need to employ some sort of financial incentive for the clubs and the French in particular to buy into it. Like seeing, I know Philippe Saint-André said that, you know, there's so many COVID cases and they did young backline and all that, but like they were an absolute disgrace last weekend, as have been the French clubs. But as soon as they lose interest in the tournament, there has to be a financial incentive for teams to do as well as possible every year, or it's just not going to work. Yeah. And to be honest, there is a financial incentive for the French uh, but it's not to win games. It's actually to blood young players uh, because that's how you make money in France. Either um, if you if a player moves on from your club who's been through your academy, their value is a multiplier of the amount of years they spent in your club plus the amount of games they played. So, for example, for those bottom six clubs, okay, in in France who are probably Challenge Cup teams, um, a lot of them are selling clubs or have to have an eye on how they can. Um, monetize their, their their squad down the road if there's a financial problem. So getting that those games into them, from Montpellier's point of view, you know they had a high number of GIF players, which is uh, who played against Leinster, who haven't played a lot. They're not in their first choice team, but they would be needed. The way San Andre saw that was they were getting a game in so that when they play in three weeks' time away to to lose. Um, you know, where he's going to get money back by the basically you get uh, a percentage of your match of your end of season check is uh, uh, from the TV money in the in the league is based on how much, what percentage of chip players you've had during the year. So it's not just a case of having a minimum. So if you have to have a minimum of sixteen, if you can get to sixteen point four, sixteen point five, sixteen point six, you get more of the of the check. So what he was doing was he was prioritizing 
his GIF players so that down the road he can throw them in, um, you know, and and obviously have a an opportunity that they've had a match uh, match practice, which is bananas for the Premier competition in Europe. But that's just the reality of it. So for sure, um, the only way, even for the super rich clubs like Racing and, and, Montpe- and Montpellier with with big benefactors, the only way to to change their attitude is to uh, make it financially uh, attractive for them. So I totally agree with Don. Yeah, and Wes, like the only way they can get, I guess, more financial incentives and offer more money, I'm talking about the competition and the organisers here, is, is is to get more brand sponsorship, to get more out of the likes of Heineken to come in and, and offer to sponsor the tournament, perhaps the TV rights deal as well. I know, obviously, it's with BT at the moment. Um, I know there's interest as well from the likes of, of Amazon and elsewhere. But ultimately, they just need more money in, in this tournament if they're going to keep uh, the French interest and, and the English as well to a certain degree. We love it in Ireland, but it's easy for us to say. Yeah, and like may- maybe more private investment and like maybe ultimately probably ceding a bit of control to to attract that in terms of how the tournament's laid out and how that can be sold to broadcasters. But I mean, I think three French teams the weekend made 15 changes from their most recent domestic game. Um, Toulouse lost a pool match for the first time in two years, despite playing against pretty average Wasp team who were down to 14 men. So there's no doubt that the interest isn't there. But luckily, I think um, the best teams will still qualify for the last 16 and it will probably take on a life of its own at that point, hopefully. Um, but I'd, I'd agree with Donal. I hadn't even thought of it till he said it there. But that that kind of that kind of scrambling to figure out the pool permutations at the end of every season was one of the huge kind of novelties of the tournament and something that made it very entertaining. And you've, you've certainly lost that when eight of 12 teams are qualifying out of a pool. What did you make of Connacht Wes, um, last week? I know Andy Friend said he, it was the most disappointing result given uh, they had the game by the scruff of the neck and to lose it in the circumstances that they did. It was a brilliant match to watch, obviously. Uh, they travelled to Stad on Sunday um, still in a position to qualify. I think they need to get just a point from the game uh, to book their place in the knockout stages. But Connacht, for me, are fast becoming one of the, the, the best talking points of Irish rugby at the moment. I love the way, even though they lost the game, uh, you know, they threw it away. But I love the way they play. I love what they're doing. We've spoken about them numerous times this season already. But um, there's something really great happening in, in the West at the moment. And I'd love to see them get through to the last 16. Yeah, they've definitely been very entertaining, but I mean, I'd hold on with uh, something really great happening and all that. They lost a match they absolutely shouldn't have lost from a completely yeah, that's true. position that's true. of control. So, like, all the talk has been about oh, what a heartbreaking defeat, which it was, but I don't know how they let that one slip, really, to be honest. Um, stop playing, I think. They just stop playing. I don't know. I still wouldn't be convinced Leicester are real contenders in terms of winning the tournament outright either. I don't know if any of the English teams are. Maybe Quinns, but it's 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 kind of it's it's hard to with with the lack of interest of some teams, it's hard to pick out a huge list of contenders. So I think I, I like with the position all the Irish provinces are in. I, I think they all have a good chance of if not winning it, certainly going pretty deep into the competition. And I wouldn't exclude Connacht from that. I think over two legs with the sports ground. You know, I, I think they can put it up to almost anyone that will be left. Yeah, and um, Ulster as well, Donald at, at home to Claremont. Obviously, they're uh, in a decent position as well um, after the, the pool stages. So they'll go through. Leinster have it within their own hands despite that uh, 
the result that went against them early on in the tournament. Um, and they play Bats, um, who they'll probably wallop as well. So, look, I mean, the Irish province is looking pretty good. Yeah, they certainly are. Look, I think, uh, well, two are qualified. You can take it as nailed that Leinster will be. I mean, Bath have been appalling. I mean, their fall from grace is, is unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, you can... And you, you saw the frustration in the Leinster performance. I mean, that 28-0 against Montpellier really stuck in there great. And you, you've got to admire the way Leinster just kept their foot to the pedal throughout the whole. Like, scoring more than a point a minute is a very difficult thing to do. And you're talking about a team that were fourth in the top 14 in, in France. Now, look, we know about all those young fellas that Bert says, but it's not an optional extra that you tackle. Do you know what I mean? You're a professional yeah. rugby player. I mean, right from the outset, they were just awful. Um, so, look, Leinster will be there. Uh, Munster qualified as well. But th- that'll be an interesting game on Sunday. Wafs, uh, you know, they've had an unbelievable couple of uh, 18 months with just injury after injury. And, uh, you know, I mean, whatever about the merits of, of Toulouse last week. I mean, you beat Leicester one Saturday. You beat Toulouse the following Saturday. Uh, they look to me like a pretty united group there in Wasp. The, the, uh, I saw the, the, uh, the game against Leicester, just the emotion on them, given everything they went through, was huge. Uh, and I think that's going to be an interesting game on Sunday. As I say, they'll be far stronger than they were, as will Munster, of course, in that opening yeah. game. So uh, it'll be interesting to see that one. Just on Munster then, and while we have gents, I want to play a clip here um, of Stephen Larkham. He has been uh, out in front of the media this week. A um, little bit frustrated and tetchy, as you would hear. Michael Glennon spoke to Stephen um, and asked him if he was bemused by any of the criticism given Munster have won four of their last five games. This is what he had to say. Well, I think you've got to be um, probably a little bit more specific in terms of that commentary. I mean, there's, there's positive and negative commentary. Um, some of those games we weren't happy with. Uh, if you look at our, our previous four games, some of those games, some of the passages in those four games haven't been great. Um, and we put our hand up and said that we need to be better. Um, I'd say other games, the referee um, has made some questionable decisions that has made it very difficult for us to get a bit of a roll on. Um, and then more recently, I think we've, we've had a couple of really good passages and a couple of really good performances. Um, probably the score didn't reflect how well we played in the last couple of games, I feel. I suppose maybe more specifically that what we would have seen from Munster over the last 10 years and before your time was that a certain style of play, once it came up to a semi-final or a final, wasn't really enough to even trouble the other teams that they played with. Is it too late in the day in the, in terms of yourself and Johan to, to adapt or to increase the variety within your play? In terms of getting to a semi-final and and landing more of a blow than in the last few years. It's an interesting question. I, I'd be, I, I guess, when you when you ask that question and, and when you sort of see some comments like that, um, you have to question what are you seeing in our game that's not in our game at the moment. Um, what what do you think is is hurting us or is is not strong enough? Um, I'll ask you that question first. Like, what is it that you feel that we're not doing well enough? Yeah, well, I'm only a civilian, but maybe Donald Lenehan was saying in his column that there needs to be more strings to the board. That if, if you spend three quarters of the season kicking so much ball when it comes to a team that's able to match up, that that doesn't put a dent in them. Yeah, okay. Okay, I think you've got to be 
you've got to be realistic when you look at our game um, and know that we're not the, 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 key, the, the team that kicks the most in most games. Um, I know we've been criticised for kicking too much in the past, um, but the stats just don't add up. Um, we feel we've got a very balanced game. We, we play the game that we want to play. We, we feel that um, when there's an opportunity on the table, we'd like to think that we're going to take those opportunities. Um, yeah, I think that we've got a. I think we've got a very sound game. I think we've been improving. I, I, I you know, spoken to you guys a couple of times this year, and I feel sorry this season, and I, and I feel that we've definitely improved, and we're still improving. We're looking for improvement every week. Um, there's certain elements in some weeks, like I said before, some weeks the game just doesn't come together because of the conditions or the referee um, or different circumstances. But we certainly have enough variety in our game. Yeah. I could probably answer all of those specific questions. When you just talk generally that we haven't got the best game, I think that's misinformed. Okay, so that's Stephen Larkham there. Donald Birch, I know you wrote about him in the a Monster in the Sunday Independent as well. Uh, Keith Wood has been quite vocal. Ronald O'Gara, Tony Ward, all um, speaking out against the style that Munster have been employed over the last while. Um, Larkham says he wants you guys to engage more in more constructive dialogue. When you ask that question, you see some of the comments like that you'd have to ask what are they seeing in our games at that moment so Donald what are you seeing Munster are brilliant to watch they're fantastic rugby and Stephen Arkham is a genius of a coach you have this all wrong here well you weren't at the match in Thomas Park the Cascade I mean that was like that was the last game when you had a massive crowd and there was an expectation there uh, I mean what we were witnessing that the quality of the rugby was just awful and look yeah. Larkin can say to it what he wants I mean he's the he's the attack coach I mean the litmus test for me, and you know, I, I referenced it in, in my own piece in the examiner yesterday. I was I've been there since the very first game the Munster played against Swansea on a Wednesday night in Tumman Park back in 1995. I've seen the vast majority of the games. I've seen all the pain they went through between 99 and 2006 when they won the tournament. All through that period, the support from the the the, the general public. And, and let's be honest, this whole monster movement, like what happened between 99 and 2008 when fans from all different backgrounds, uh, primarily GA people, got sucked into following monster. It was a movement. Uh, the heartbreak sort of solidified everyone and their support for the team. Uh, there was never a dissenting voice. I was away in games in, in, in France when monster, when monster lost. Uh, you know, they didn't play the most attractive rugby, but they left everything on the field and people accepted that. But rugby has moved on. Professional sport has been moved on. And I have been, uh, I won't say shocked, but I've been amazed by the amount of people down here that have come up to me and said, God, Munster are just shocking to watch. I mean, last Monday morning, I was actually writing my piece, having a coffee somewhere, uh, came across uh, three lads who... Uh, uh, from probably an older generation than me, but they were all involved in rugby. A lot of them played rugby. And, you know, they're just massive rugby fans. And th their heads were down. One of them said, look, I can't watch Munster. I love Connacht for the reasons that you're saying. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you've got to be cognizant of your support base. I mean, uh, and, and, and look, again, I just referenced it in that piece. Last weekend, Ulster, Connacht, Leinster, all got four try bonuses. It is the positivity of the games. Watching those games and watching Munster on Friday night, the, the first thing, what sticks out like a mile is just the, the, the tempo of the game. 
Connacht, Leinster and Ulster played at a much different tempo. That Ulster-Northampton game was, it was a brilliant game, million miles uh, an hour. Now, I don't... Rugby, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of different teams. Like, I was never a critic of Joe Schmidt during his period in Irish rugby because he maximised what Ireland had. He got Ireland played in a way that made them superior in key areas to other teams. You don't have to replicate what everyone else is doing. You have to yeah. maximise the strengths of what you have and use that to your benefit. I personally don't believe that Munster are maximising the strengths of what they have. I think the backline that they have, there is so much more capability within that. When you see Andrew Conway getting one pass, you see Andrew Conway never plays a bad game. He's, he's probably oh, he's the only Munster starter against the All Blacks last November. But he gets one pass a game. Um, you know, so that is what drives people bananas. And plus the realisation, and you know, I'm sick in the teeth from saying this, if you keep on playing that way, you will, come, you will be in the quarterfinals and you could possibly be in the semifinals, but that's it. And if that's that is the sum of your ambition, then that's, yeah. that's the, you know. And it does seem to be accepted that there is a ceiling on Munster, the way they play. There's a ceiling burst that will get them so far, but not anywhere uh, further. Either Stephen Larkham is wrong in what he's saying, and you're all wrong, or, you know, and, and everybody who's writing about it is wrong, or else there's a serious problem here. The consensus seems to be, Bert, that everyone else can see what's happening in front of them, bar the people who are in charge of the Munster team at the moment. Well, look at it. Uh, yeah, so... Obviously, he, he's he's annoyed about the criticism, but as pundits, um, if we don't call it as we see it, we're not pundits, we're fans, right? Yeah, and, yeah. you know, maybe he wants us all to be fans, and that'd be easier. But the reality is, even some of the things he said, so basically, I know we've been criticised for kicking too much in the past, but the stats don't just add up, right? So I, I went looking at the stats, okay? So official stats in this this year's URC only the Ospreys and the Dragons have kicked more on average Correct. per game than Correct. Munster right Correct. Um, yeah. in this year's European Cup the Champions Cup Leicester, Bordeaux and Connacht have all kicked more on average than Munster but no, nobody else now what's the key common denominator there in that in that group Leicester right so Leicester with Steve Bortwick have set their stall out we want to play territory so they refuse to play in their own half and hence if Bordeaux and Connacht played against them they obviously had a choice. They had to run it back or, or kick it back. So th that's that's very unique to one team having a clear um, policy. Now, Leicester are winning games. Leicester are able to, to score good tries um, off set-piece attack. They're able to play, score good tries off counter-attack because they've got a very good set-piece. They've got a very good kicking game, okay, through Ben Youngs, uh, George Ford, etc. They're finding space, and they're able to put the squeeze on team teams. They, and they've won, and, and, and as I said, they've got a better balance to their game, I feel, than, than Munster. There's nothing wrong with playing a high-percentage kicking game. But just look look at the castaway game the other night. They were chasing the game, okay? Um, and they cast, obviously, were trying to play territory, and Munster kept box-kicking back. But it wasn't like the box-kicking that we saw in Ulster against Northampton, where Balakloon was going up and winning the ball. I would say the kick chase was poor. And if you actually think about the, the break that led to John Hodnett's uh, sorry, the John the the phase of play that led to John Hodnett's break, which eventually gave Munster the field position to score. Actually, from a box kick, Cast broke the line, and we're on the counter attack, and we're we're heading into twenty two, and they probably got too excited and threw an offload, which went to ground, and that gave Munster the opportunity to break away through John Hodnett. So, if they were playing a, a box kicking game where they were winning the ball back in the air, 
or they were arriving at the same time as the ball and counter-rooking and getting turnovers. I could see the logic to that, but it seems as if they have this pattern of play uh, without the obvious, you know, next layer to make it effective. Saracens won European Cups and Premiership through having a high kicking game. I'm not anti-kicking at all. Um, I just think there's certain times where you have to show a little bit more. And, you know, we saw them against Connacht away where they were spent, whatever, five minutes on the Connacht line just before half time. No creativity, you know what I mean? And, and it wasn't that to do with kicking there. So, you know, first of all, he says that we're wrong about our stats. Uh, we're not far wrong, you know what I mean? And mate, much of them have I, I, I was doing the match, and, and, and you're right, Munster, I've written down here in my notes, Munster have kicked the ball 27 times on average per game in the URCs this season, the third highest average behind the Dragons and the Ospreys. That's yeah. fact. And I'm not, I'm not anti-kicking at all. I think you can have a really exciting uh, kicking game, and you can use a kicking game to your advantage. Yeah. But it's like, you know, it's like what we've heard from, from Matt Field, that apparently Johan said, look, he signed Snyman and Jenkins, he can't play the power game, what can he do? Well, you could have a different plan. You know what I mean? You could actually vary, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, carry footballers missing two midfielders, you know, would they change their tactics? You, you would imagine that they, they potentially talk about it or look at it. So, and also Stephen Larkin was brought into Munster to fix their attack. So if, if Munster's attack has been brilliant, why do they need Stephen Larkin um, and what has moved on? So as I said, it's back to being a punter. If we're not balanced, fair enough, then criticize us. Yeah. But I think, I, I certainly feel that I've been I'm 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 saying it based on what I've seen, and the stats on this occasion do back us up. And it's not all about stats, but when people on the street aren't enjoying watching Munster play, you know there's a problem. Who is the famous uh, GA coach Wes who said we have Plan A, we don't have Plan B. We have, if we have to go to Plan B, we're I can't remember who said it, but uh, it's one of the <laughs> one of the famous lines. Munster have Plan A, they don't have Plan B at the moment, and I think that's pretty obvious for everyone to see. Yeah, I don't think that's as uncommon as you make out, though. Like, Stephen Larkham's wrong in what he's saying because the stats bear it out. I mean, that seems pretty obvious. But, I mean, you know, five minutes ago, you were lauding Connacht for throwing away a 20-point lead at home. Like, no, no, we're not lauding. We're not lauding. We're not, well, you did. No, you no, did. Well, I'd much rather, I'd much rather, I'd much rather support Connacht playing the way they are, should have won the game, Right, then we support a team that went to cast on again on Friday night and again at home before Christmas and played the way Munster play. It's chalk and cheese for me. And you're right in what you're saying. They still lost the match, and I accept but, that. But there's more but, potential in what Connacht are doing than what Munster but, are doing. But Bert, Bert said a minute ago, as long as there's balance. And the only reason I can see Larkham's frustration, aside from self-interest and trying to justify his own job, is they did go and win a game, you know, on the road with a score in the last few minutes. They're in a very good position in the group. There were positives in five or six guys under 22, 23 playing at that level in Jack Crowley playing his first game in Europe. So I wouldn't throw everything out. And I thought there was more endeavour last Friday than there was against Castro the previous round, for sure. But, like, uh, I don't know why we're surprised that they're playing this way. They've been doing it for a number of years. They have a South African head coach who's heavily influenced by... South African ideas and what won him the most recent World Cup. Like, it's just not going to change. Like, I'm, I'm not saying I don't want it to change, but it's not going to change. This would be what will happen for the rest of the season. It's what's happened for the last number of seasons. Like, I'd be more concerned in a big picture about something like, like if you saw it announced that Jason Jenkins is moving on at the end of the season. Um, like, they basically paid him a couple of hundred grand 
to get physio for the year for the most part, which it happens, people get injured. But when you look at the cost combined of, say, him, Snaim, and one or two others, and, and, and you look at the restructuring of the competition this season that, you know, until the COVID cancellations in South Africa, URC windows weren't going to clash with international windows. And you're kind of thinking... Is there is there a need for a 45, 46-man squad anymore? Is is there a merit in cutting back one of those overseas signing and putting that into development projects? Like, I, I think when people talk about the director of rugby job, it's, I'd nearly see, much rather see them concerned with those kind of issues than with anything to do with the first team. Mm. But would you yeah, accept just, just that? Quickly, well, just quickly, sorry, Hugh. The yeah. reason we don't compare Con- Connacht to Munster... <laughs> And the reason we're probably more excited about what they're doing is we understand their limitations, budgetary-wise, history-wise. I mean, if Munster want to be compared to Connacht, well, then that, that's that's the starting problem. I mean, you know, Connacht are made up of, of, of fellas. Like, Keane Prendergast was let go by Leinster Academy. Paul Boyle didn't make it in Leinster. Gavin Thornbury has had a circuit cir- cir- um, cir- route to, to professional professional rugby. Uh, so, so both sides are made up of guys that didn't make it in Leinster then, is what we're saying. Both sides. Well, no, not Munster. Well, maybe Munster have had some players that make in Leinster, but Munster should have higher expectations. And as a, as look at the resources they have. I mean, you know, if, if they should be looking for trophies, that's where Munster. As a as a coach, Bert, as a coach, Bert, would you not be excited if you were offered the Munster job and you came in this summer? Would you not be hugely excited by the talent that Munster have at their disposal right now? And would you not be saying to yourself, "I can get more out of this bunch of players than what we have seen over the last two years"? I certainly would be, and I'm not a coach. Well, look, Munster have Munster have huge potential. Munster have huge potential. They have something. That's unique. the key, isn't it? They, they absolutely. So, and again, the, the the barometer for them is trophies. And if as soon as they start looking to looking to say, oh, you know, we're being harshly judged, etc. Well, then they've already lost the battle. They should judge themselves on trophies. Obviously, the 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 trophy cabinet is pretty barren. And you know, at some stage, that's got to be fixed. And and I and I and I said I said last week. I don't think it's just the coaches. I think the senior player group there, you know, have haven't done enough to to have short term success at, at at certain times. And you know, it's a shared. The whole organization has to judge itself and winning trophies. Uh, and you know, being feeling sensitive about criticism. Is, is irrelevant. It's what they're doing on the field, off the field, to make sure that they're mm. winning Europe. That's that's how I see it. Connacht are going to struggle to win Europe. You know what I mean? Let's be honest. They yeah. it'll take a while. It'll take a while, and that's why that's why you know they maybe get a fair crack from from punditry from pundits. Plus, they're playing an attractive brand of rugby. Mm. But the reality is, um, I, I think that's why Munster are being judged harshly because they deserve to be judged harshly because they are one of the best teams in Europe potentially. Mm. Yeah, I t- it's you. The the most the best thing that's happened to Munster this year, they've won the three matches in Europe, but the best thing that has happened, they've 18 and possibly 19 players have made debuts in Europe. And a lot of those guys, I, I would know the vast majority of them because they've come through the schools and the club system. They've played in the All-Ireland League. And as a consequence of that, you see them and you know there's massive potential there. I'm not saying that all 18 of those lads uh, will go on to be Heineken Cup players with Munster. But uh, a, a fair percentage of them will. So there is a lot of hope for the future. There are structural issues that need to be addressed off the field. 
uh, and the things that Bernard is alluding to there. And unless you get those things right as an organization, then you're not going to get the maximum return out of what you have. And this, the, the Jason Jenkins ones, I was reading this morning, oh, that he's likely to go to Leinster. I think this guy will be a huge success in Leinster because I think he's a very good rugby player. There was, there was a huge turmoil down here when they signed him to replace CJ Stander because they were trying to tell us he was a back row forward who could play a bit in the second row. In my opinion, he's the other way around. He is a second yeah. row who can play a bit in the back row. So they were, again, just trying to fool the public. And given um, the younger fellas that were in there, at that stage you had Snyman and you had John Klein and, and, and all these guys. So that is why there was a, a sort of a huge turnoff to the fact that they had another South African guy coming in, taking up a young lad's place. But the irony for me is this guy is a very good player. He's a very good second row. And I think could possibly that will that this guy will add hugely to the Leinster makeup because I think he's probably what they need uh, if and when he arrives there next year. But I would be far more uh, enlightened by the, the the younger guys that are coming through in Munster by all this sort of short-term hassle. Like the bottom line is there's going to be change. We are going to have a new coach. We are going to have a new structure, be it a director of rugby or be it a head coach uh, in Munster next year. And I do certainly think there is talent there. Certainly, um, that when you get the, that you can offer more than what they're doing at the moment, and that is yeah. where the frustration is with people down here at present. And exactly. you know, I think we should draw a line on it at this stage. We've flogged the thing to death, uh, yeah. and just see what happens over the next. See month. what happens, and as, as they say, when you're explaining, you're losing, gentlemen. Uh, thank you so much. Obviously, last round of the Champions Cup uh, this weekend, so. Uh, Connacht are away to start. Leinster play Bath. It's Claremont coming to Ulster and Munster Wasps on Sunday. We'll review it all next week in the company of the lads. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you then. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.